Lights out. Welcome, everybody, once again to the Sleep Tech Talk. Hey, Robert, I got it right this time. The Sleep Podcast, and we appreciate you all for joining us once again. And with your hosts, uh, Robert Miller, Emerson Kerr, and the man who waits till midnight to brush his teeth, Jerry George. And we have a fantastic guest once again today for each and every one of you. And we thank you all for listening. But before I get into that, I'm going to hand it off to Emerson, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about today. Emerson. Hey, absolutely. Thanks, Jerry. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to everyone. I'm actually talking to you from the Pittsburgh International Airport. Thank God for technology and the fact that you don't know what's going on around me. But um, we're really fortunate today to have Kimmy Clark with us. Kimmy and I met, gosh, probably a little over 15 years ago at the old Southeast Southwest APT. And uh, Kimmy's been a part of education and accreditation and a, just a long, rich history uh, bringing value to sleep technology. And we are excited to have her with us today. So Kimmy, if you can, just go ahead and share a little bit about uh, how you got into sleep, your little bit of your background, and uh, and we look forward to hearing about it. Thanks, Kimmy. Thank you. Um, well, it's funny because I have been listening to your podcast and everybody's kind of origin stories. It was like, same, same, same. Everybody kind of just, especially our generation, I guess, it kind of happened by accident. You know, somebody says, hey, have you ever heard about the sleep lab? So that's kind of exactly what happened. My sister-in-law was in nursing school and she was working in a sleep lab, but kind of on the side. She's like, you should come work at the sleep lab. And, you know, of course, in my mind, I was thinking kind of what I heard a couple of you guys say is like, there's going to be a big glass panel and I'm just going to watch him through the glass and I'm going to be in this other room. And so when I got in there and saw it and the there's actual bedrooms and you're in another room, you know, so it was just kind of by accident. I worked EMS prior to that, which actually is a side note. I think that's a pretty good crossover when you've got, because I worked at, um, I did an ASTEP program too, and that was one of the prerequisites they could do like a medical assistant or EMT. And I think it gives you such a good base knowledge of so many different things and you particularly working in EMS, you don't panic if there's a seizure or things like that. Like I've literally seen techs run out of the room when someone has a seizure <laughs> because it scared them. So that kind of prepares you for emergencies because particularly now more than ever, you know, where you're likely to have an emergency in the sleep lab. But, you know, that was it. It was, uh, you know, the first, it was on the job training, of course. So you get in there and you, you know, they're saying, okay, you just do this, you measure this. And, you know, so you're trying to remember all of these yeah. things. And then the first two days you're like, I've made a terrible mistake. I've just made a terrible mistake. I don't see any of these things that they're saying I should see. I don't, I don't see a spindle. I don't see sideways Christmas trees for the eyes. <laughs> so by like day hey, three, hey, it I, finally I just clicks wanted to in. Make another, I just wanted to make another dollar an hour. That's, that's what got me into sleep. <laughs> I love the reference of the sideways Christmas trees. I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what they kept saying. And I was like, I don't see them. I don't see those Christmas trees. So that I, then finally it kind of clicked in about day three. And then, you know, at that point, like by day four, the next week, you're working by yourself. So it's, it's kind of scary, but I mean, that is how it worked back then. You know, you got about, if you were lucky, you got about a week's training with somebody and then you were out working on your own. So you figured out a lot of things, you know, on your own. And as you went, there's a lot of things you haven't even heard of at that point. I think on my 
in my first couple of months working by myself and I was at a lab by myself, somebody had run behavioral disorder and I have no idea what that was. And it was like, it was the freakiest thing I'd ever seen. And I'm in talking to the patient. They're kind of talking to me. I'm running back in the tech room and I'm like, they're asleep. <laughs> so, you know, so interesting things happen nowadays. I'm glad we have a little bit better training programs and, you know, college, um, people can get some education and get in. So you're a little more prepared for those things and not learning them because it happened to you while you were running a sleep study. But that was it. It's very okay. similar to everybody else. Yep. <laughs> well, Kimmy, you, you and I used to work together and um, I, I, mm -hmm. I know that you, and I would probably put the number of accreditations that you have been through uh, and been a part of, uh, you, you probably have done that more than anybody in the industry. And um, that's really, you know, part of what we wanted to really sort of dive into today is the fact that you're on the ASM's accreditation committee. You've been a part of that for some time now. And, um, and, and really, you know, can you tell us how that sort of happened and, you know, what that committee, what your responsibilities are and, and really maybe even then just walk us through what an accreditation process looks like. Sure. I mean, also with accreditation, it's just kind of something I accidentally fell into and started doing more and more of them. And then all of a sudden I'm doing, you know, 20, 30 a year. And so I've probably done way more than 300 at this point, you know, in the last 20 years, you know, I've gotten to know the site visitors, they know me and that's always, that always works out well when you have some connection there and they know, you know, what they're, what, what to expect. But so I started out and it really, this is at Medbridge Roberts. So I started out doing a lot of accreditations there and that was just part of my job, but it ended up being a lot of my job instead of kind of having managers try to work in there and do it, you know, once every five years, it really was helpful to have the same person doing it over and over again. And then you don't have this loss of, you know, what happened in the last five years that I need to change. So I started doing all those accreditations. And then at some point, I think it was actually John Mathias said, he goes, you should, you should volunteer for that accreditation committee. And I was like, oh boy, one more thing I got to do. <laughs> and so at that point, it was all doctors on the committee. And I thought, well, I'll put in my, you know, you pie and, you know, send your resume and things like that to they, and the reason for that really is they want a nice mix on these committees. So there's lots and lots of committees, but they don't want everybody to be from the same place and same background. They want to really have different opinions from all over the country because like the way sleep operates in California is going to be very different than it operates in Florida. So they want a nice mix and then like peds and things like that. So get a little mix of different um, specialists on the committee too. So that's kind of the reason for that. But so I ended up getting on the committee. So it's only sleep tech, but I think I brought probably two reasons. You bring kind of an interesting perspective as a tech or a different perspective, but also just how many accreditations I was doing. I got an insight into physician-owned practice, IDTFs, and hospital-based practice all over the country. So that was kind of a, had information that was worked well with the accreditation committee because I did have kind of some insight in a lot of different places and you know, scenarios. Um, so you volunteer for the committee and there are many committees, but the accreditation is one that I had a special interest in. And I think I got on as a committee member in 2017 and it's either two or three year um, commitments that you do. And then I ended up becoming the vice chair uh, about two years ago. So with the committees, we meet once a month, but if you're a chair or vice chair, you meet 
twice a month. So what you would do is meet the week before and you discuss everything. You've got your uh, accreditation liaisons, the staff at the ASM is awesome. They put everything together, you know, and help you with an agenda. And we kind of hash out, you know, what we need to talk about. With the accreditation committee, for example, we might have assignments. So if there's a center issue, maybe oh, somebody's got a proviso that they're you know, writing a letter about and saying we can't meet this and here's why and we think we should get an exemption or something like that. So we go over center issues is one of the things. We approve accreditation programs. We have a lot of special projects that we get sometimes. We had a special project a couple of years ago. It took almost a year to get through that project. And then standards and things like that. So those would be other kind of special projects you work on the accreditation standards. Um, so that's about once a month you get your information that we're going to review on the committee about um, that week and then we we go through it it's funny that sometimes what you think everybody's going to agree on you know you're reading the agenda and it's like oh that's going to be a slam dunk it'll take five minutes that'll be the one that takes 45 minutes to hash through everybody's got a different opinion on because you have to make decisions sometimes you know whether that be for you know, a standard or something upcoming with the accreditation, like a process or like a center issue. And so it's already rules. Sometimes everybody's great, you know, it's interesting to see that, but we have a lot of really good discussions because even my mind gets changed and may go in thinking one thing and then you hear some opinions from people from different, you know, parts of the country or different experiences. Um, but the accreditation process, it's been pretty much the same for a long time. I think everybody gets kind of bogged down in the stress of it, but it's really, it shouldn't be that way. The ASM is there to help you. They want to see you get accredited. So I think people have a tendency to think of an accreditation as what can we find wrong with your center that we're going to, you know, get you on. But that is not the way it goes. They're really there to help. They're really nice people. If you have any questions at all, you just call. You just call up their accreditation liaisons and they are there to help you and explain anything you need. Um, but the accreditation process, you start with an application. So it's an online application now. I remember back in the day, you used to send, I can't remember if it was two or three, like it couldn't be more than an inch thick paper application. And you would send more, I forget, I think it was maybe two, more than one copy. I think one maybe going to the site visitor, one going, you know, that was at the ASM. So yeah. it's come a long way. And <laughs> now you just scan all your stuff and attach it in there. So the application, I think people, again, get overwhelmed at that, but it tells you exactly what it wants. You put it in, you know, everything's listed, you, you add your stuff and you, you know, you add your documentation, it tells you exactly what it wants in there. So you just keep attaching, you know, everything it's asking for. It's going to tell you if something isn't in there. So what would well, happen? I remember is taping, uh, by the way, I remember taping Polaroids into my accreditation <laughs> application. That was a long yeah, time yeah, ago. Yeah. Now you just have to do a floor plan. Unless you move or something, then you might have to have some pictures. I remember putting the dividers and all that. It was. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was huge. It was like a big binder and it was huge, but it couldn't be more than an inch thick. I guess people got a little overzealous. At some point, somebody set them an encyclopedia and then we got a, um, a height measurement on that. Um, but once you. Um, <laughs> submit your application, you know, it will get reviewed. They do have some things now. It's like expedited accreditation. So if you were maybe in a hurry, maybe your state, this is probably less now, but if your state had an LCD change and you need to get accredited very quickly, if you do the expedited 
accreditation, I think they say they'll get it reviewed in about two weeks, where normally it might be like four to six weeks for an application review. So even then, you know, they go through the application review, and if anything, you know, I, they call them issues, which I kind of wish they'd call them maybe a query or something like that. Issues doesn't sound nice. <laughs> but if you were to get any issue, then you'd get an email that say, hey, you've got a couple issues. You log back into your application. They are very clearly stated. Maybe it's a policy that needs to have some more information on it. Maybe you accidentally attached somebody else's CPR card to another tech or something like that. So it'll tell you exactly exactly what they're looking for for you to resolve those issues. So the, the purpose of that is that from the application, they really want to have everything they could possibly need. They want to make sure that essentially if you're getting through the application portion, you really should not have any issue with a site visit because they're looking for all the things they would need to know to know that your program is meeting all the standards and that's really what it's about. Are you meeting all the standards, taking care of the patients and that kind of thing? Do you have the right appropriate staff and that sort of thing? And that's all in the application, so you submit that. So it used to be that you would get your site visit before you would become accredited, but that switched around a little bit, and probably because of volume, and it just makes it a little bit faster, is you get accredited from your application, and then they'll come visit your site within the next year, sometime within the next year. Now, with COVID, it's a little backed up. We've had some a little bit longer. I see the list, I won't say, but I see the list of how many are pending, and I'm like, oof, we got backed up. <laughs> Everything got a little backed up during COVID because um, everything was just shut down. And then now there's, they used to always come on site, but with COVID um, became, you know, like everybody else had to figure out a way to do it. We were doing, um, the, the ASM adopted some Zoom site visits, so some virtual site visits. They are, as of July, they are doing in-persons again, but it's still a little bit of a mix. So I think doing some of the virtuals on reaccreditations and things might help you know, get that bag locked down too. But really the virtual is the exact same thing if you were in person, but all you need is make sure one person is in the lab because they're gonna take the camera around and show the actual lab, look at the bedrooms, look at the space between the, you know, the wall and the bed and the equipment and all that kind of stuff where you clean things. So that's, um, when you get your site visit date, you'll get an email for your site visit date. And then it's usually they give you it's probably at least 45 days out, if not a little bit more, because the, the medical director is going to have to be there for the entire site visit. So they will have to block their day. And so the ASM is very cognizant that, you know, that's not an easy thing to do for a physician, a practicing physician these days. So you do have to kind of block your day. So you need to be there the whole time. And that's when you, you know, they're basically just verifying everything you put in the application. So they're just verifying that what you sent is what's happening at your center. And then a big part of that day would also be reviewing case samples um, or, or case studies of patients that the medical director has seen. And that's really just to make sure that the patients, there are, there's actual follow-up with those patients. So that's a big part of the ASM's kind of mission and values is that sleep patients are being taken care of and followed appropriately. So in looking at those case samples, it's very easy to see pretty quickly, you know, that those patients are being followed appropriately and cared for appropriately. Where you'd run into a problem if nobody's seeing those patients and follow-up. So that, but that kind of usually gets hashed out before it ever starts because that is part of um, the standards that you do have to have follow-up for the patients, for your sleep patients offer a follow-up. Yeah, I, I know that there are some um, 
fleet diagnostic providers that, um, you know, they're more of an e-commerce model where they don't necessarily bill insurance and, and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know that they regularly seek accreditation either. Maybe they do, but um, it, do you see any of those, those types of diagnostic services um, uh, get ASM accredited? The, um, I don't know about e-commerce. I don't think so. I haven't seen yeah. any of those. Um, for sure, there there are those that get accredited that don't have to. I mean, obviously, one of the big reasons to get accredited is so you can bill insurances and things like that. But not all states require that. So we do, I, you know, you do see many in states who don't have to have it. They just want to have it to be able to say we're meeting the gold standard, you know, that so patients can feel comfortable. Um, but I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> And Kimmy, I know that one of the questions that we had posed um, in, in, as we were, you know, looking at topics or having topics sent to us from, you know, some of the sleep techs in the field um, was related to um, three to one care and sort of what the ASM stance on that is. And, you know, um, not to necessarily get to try to be controversial, but just to, to sort of help, I guess, the field and, and um, you know, others understand sort of what the you know, what's going to happen if you're in a three-bed sleep center and you're going through your first um, ASM accreditation? Okay, and I won't speak for the ASM on this, but it, the, the language was in there for about five minutes, <laughs> and so it ended up getting taken back out, and it says two to one under usual circumstances, so that is the, the volume now, and I think the really the biggest concern on that is if you actually put that in writing and in a standard, it might start to affect payers and things like that. Well, if you can do three, or the you know accredited sites so you can absolutely have three bed labs and run three to ones what you need is a policy on how and when you're going to do that um, so what's important is you know you can work within the confines of those standards but you might want to think about okay we're going to have a policy that says we're only going to do you know certain types of patients we're not going to have special needs patients on those nights you know and things things of that nature so you're you're not overwhelming the tech the other thing might be like an emergency backup policy where you can call somebody if you need it if you're in a hospital environment that might be a little less um, or it might be a little bit easier to get somebody up if you needed help, but if you're at an IDTF, let's say, maybe there's some kind of emergency backup policy where if you get overwhelmed or if you get sick, which honestly, that could happen in a two-bed lab. The tech could get sick and now you've got two patients. The only difference is you've got now three. But so that was one thing that was suggested by a site, uh, site visitor was to have kind of emergency backup policy, which I made, you know, which of course did. Um, but when you think about it, particularly with an IDTF, it doesn't matter if you have one or three patients, if something bad happens to the tech or a patient of the kind of the same thing is going to apply. So you can okay. do it. You just want to make sure you have supporting policies on when and how you're going to manage that. Hey, Kimmy, thank you so much for that. That was actually very interesting. And I know, like uh, Robert said, it's often very controversial. So that was definitely a good explanation. But we're out of time and we can't thank you enough for uh, joining us on the, on the podcast. And we wanna thank all our listeners and viewers out there for joining us. And with that, we're gonna close today. Lights on. <laughs>